Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Good Monday morning from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York City and points beyond to our worldwide audience. Paul Sweeney with you. Matt Miller's out today, but we are joined by Lisa Abramowitz. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's always great to be back with you, and it's for a really interesting day. Today is International Women's Day, and I got to say, Paul, it couldn't come on a more powerful moment, one that has been the she session, where women have disproportionately found themselves out of work as a result of the pandemic. And this comes as a whole host of reasons fuel it. And yet, here we are at a pivotal moment for women entering the labor force. And Karen Mills joining us now has vast experience, both from the female perspective of being an entrepreneur, but also of what it is to be in the, in the labor market, particularly with small business. She's a senior fellow at Harvard Business School, the former small business administrator for President Obama from 2009 to 2013. Joining us from Karen, uh, from Boston, not Karen, I apologize. Karen, uh, thank you so much for being with us. I just want to start with uh, just the vast pain experienced in the pandemic by women. How deep is the She Session? First of all, I'm so pleased to be with you today because it's International Women's Day and, you know, we're marking this moment. And you ask exactly the right question. Uh, Women were a lot harder hit by uh, this pandemic in terms of, you know, the economic impact. And that is true in two ways that I worry about a lot. One is a lot of women dropped out of the workforce because of the increased pressures. And the numbers are tough. 2.3 million women dropped out, 1.8 men. So you can just see there, you know, they're going to be more impacted. And we can talk about small businesses. They've been much harder hit in the smallest and the women and minority owned businesses. So that's a problem, too. All right. So, Karen, as we begin to approach, I guess, what a lot of people feel like is a reopening uh, of the U.S. economy here, what can women do to try to get back into the market, get back into the labor force, get uh, perhaps their businesses uh, back reopened and that type of thing? Well, thank goodness we passed um, another round of the small business aid, the PPP, around Christmas time. And there's more in this package that's going through Congress because small businesses are really devastated. And I I just looked at these numbers uh, before I came on because women-owned businesses, 58% of them say they're running out of cash. They're either out of cash or they're about to run out of cash. That's 58% compared to 42% of the men-owned businesses. And why is that? Because a lot of these customer-facing businesses that had to shut and these very small non-employer businesses, sole proprietorships, this is where the women have gained some economic ground. You know, when I ran the SBA, women, particularly actually Hispanic women, were the fastest-growing part of our small business world. And now we've given them a real setback. 
So they've got to take advantage of every single thing that is out there for them um, because there's a lot of grant money coming out through these PPP programs. There's low interest loans and they got to stay with us because if they shut their doors, it's going to take the economy a really long time to recover and it's going to recover disproportionately, which we know is a problem or, you know, that hurts everybody. Well, Karen, can you talk a little bit about why women have suffered so disproportionately? Some people say because they have more jobs in uh, certain areas like education that have been hit hard. But there's also the child care issue. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, you know, all across uh, being a woman, you know, trying to prosper economically, there are frictions and barriers that, you know, I hope in my lifetime will get better and go away. And it's it's true we've made progress, but I actually think we're at a tipping point. All of these kinds of frictions and barriers where more burdens fall on the women and also employers don't do enough. We, we know right now we need all the women in our workforce and we know we want to create a culture that works for them and we want to create, uh, you know, help for them because they have cho- children. Having children is the absolute best thing. I have three boys, best thing ever. But, you know, it's a lot of work, and especially when they're young. So we need to make sure that employers step up and not do this as a nice to have. This is a must have if you are going to be competitive. All right. Along that front, Karen, you know, we see more and more talk, we hear more and more talk about diversity from some of the larger corporations. Is that real? Is it, is it, do you see real change occurring, or is it more in the Department of Lip Service? You know, we're not quite at that inflection point in terms of the corporate diversity programs. I just read a case for Harvard Business School and one of the big tech companies, one of them, you know, whose name you say every day. Yep. And um, it, you know, it is really focused on doing a real diversity equity and inclusion program. And their philosophy is that's where they're going to get competitive advantage. And it was very interesting to go deep in this because it was a persuasive argument that if you want to make your customers happy, you have to have a happy and inclusive workplace. If you want to have diverse customers, you want to have a diverse and inclusive workplace and people who are not spending any of their mind share worrying about, am I being left out of this meeting for some reason? So I am persuaded that uh, the ones who get it, which is not everybody, will have competitive advantage. Interesting. We will follow up on that. Karen Mills, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Karen Mills, senior fellow. Harvard Business School, former small business administrator for President Obama as well, getting her thoughts on uh, women in the workplace and the she session uh, in which women uh, have been hit harder. And Karen shared some statistics there. Women have been hit harder in terms of unemployment and other economic metrics during this pandemic and during uh, the recession insulting. Well, in the equity markets, it's really been about the rotation trade. Really, since about September of last year, some of those more cyclical sectors, such as energy, such as banking, have been outperforming some of the typical drivers of this market, some of the large cap technology names. The question is, 
How much more does that trade have left? And where should we be looking in the markets these days? Lisa Shallot, she's the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. She joins us. We always appreciate Lisa's uh, opinion. So, Lisa, again, the rotation trade has been a really interesting trade for a lot of investors. Um, how much more do you think is left to go here uh, in that type of uh, portfolio? Uh, so look, our perspective is that, you know, a lot of these sectors, whether we're talking about financials, energy, industrials, infrastructure, you know, parts of, of consumer services and, and consumer durables uh, have really been left behind not only uh, during the recession, but were left behind for the entire last business cycle, uh, you know, that we saw from, from you know, the post-pandemic. Uh, and so we think that there's, you know, quite a lot more to go. And, uh, you know, this is not simply about economic growth. And, and that's especially true of uh, some of the services, the more cyclical services businesses. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about is that in this new business cycle that we're entering, the opportunities for some of these uh, cyclicals to really embrace and optimize on digitization, optimize on some of the lessons learned from the pandemic on contactless business models means that they're not just going to benefit from a pickup in economic growth, but they're going to pick up uh, uh, benefit from a pickup in margins and return on assets. I, I really think some of these companies are going to, uh, you know, see some some very big improvements uh, in in uh, moving towards asset light business models. Well, here's the tension, though, Lisa, is that people see very fast growth, at least in the near term. And yet we've got a Fed that's talking about inflation remaining low. Janet Yellen was speaking on MSNBC moments ago and uh, Treasury Secretary, and she said that she doesn't think that the stimulus bill will be uh, something that will cause inflation problems. Do you buy this? I mean, isn't there sort of an uncomfortable reality here of fast growth, yet no inflation, uh, which is sort of unsustainable? Look, it's it's uh, it's always a daunting thing to to disagree with with people like you know the, the head of the Fed and, and Jerome Powell and and certainly you know Janet Yellen at, at Treasury and so you know my my comments are are obviously made with with a huge degree of humility uh, and respect for for them uh, but look I I do think that while certainly. Uh, there's lots of evidence that, that some of the inflationary pressures, especially those related to the supply chain, um, are, are probably going to be transitory. And we know that very often, you know, big moves we've seen commodity prices are transitory. Uh, the reality is that we think that there are some other things going on here. Uh, the degree to which fiscal stimulus uh, you know, in this recession has gone directly uh, to small businesses and directly to households is relevant. Um, it's coming at a time when there is uh, behavioral pent up demand for consumer services, for travel, for leisure, for entertainment. And there is household balance sheet capacity to spend. And so what's different for us this time is that we actually are believers that monetary velocity is going to be uh, picking up, is going to be one of the drivers of inflation 
<clears throat> uh, and we don't think that this is going to be a cycle like like uh, the last one, where deleveraging among the banks and deleveraging among households prevented money velocity from picking up, and and that's why you were able to see the the Fed print money. Uh, but not have inflation. So that's that's the thing that's different to us this time is is fiscal, and it's the directness of the fiscal, right? It's it's not tax cuts. Lisa, I'm going to let you go, but before I do, how high can yields go before it stops the equity rally? Just 20 seconds. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> unfortunately, I probably don't have a 20 second answer on that. <laughs> but, uh, as we're as running out of time, I wish we had more I, I time know. with you. But carry on. I I I, I know. Uh, but but look, uh, you know, our our sense is that um, you know this is all about the equity risk premium, and that means uh, that you know rates can continue to go up and not hurt stocks if earnings estimates are also going up. Uh, well done. And so. <laughs> Our 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 our, uh, our sense, however, is that the, we're reaching a, a peak in earnings revisions, breadth, uh, and therefore, you know, any further move higher in rates, if we were to get, you know, into the 175 range, it it, it starts becoming problematic, uh, unless unless we really can can start looking to 2022 and much much higher earnings. So we've got a 4175 yeah. as the bull case on S and P 500 index. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but well, not a lot more from here. Lisa Shallot, Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Thank you so much. Let's turn our attention to the global energy markets. I'm looking at WTI crude here, $65.55, down about 55 cents today. But of course, oil's been on a major move higher. Uh, WTI, we touched uh, almost $68 today. So big move, presumably a play on higher global demand going forward. And then we also had OPEC kind of holding supply steady. Let's get the latest on the global energy markets. We do that with Regina Mayer, global energy head for KPMG. So Regina, again, a big move up here in global crude. What's your takeaway? Well, we're at a nearly two-year high. We haven't seen prices like this since April of 2019. And I think we're going to continue to see a pretty buoyant price for the next few months. U.S. shale producers are committed to staying the course and not radically increasing production, and it's sort of a low-risk, high-reward strategy for OPEC Plus to pursue to keep the supply out of the market and continue to drive the price closer to $70 per barrel. They need that oil revenue. Most of them still doesn't, that doesn't meet their budgetary needs for their countries, and so right now they're going to play it for as long as they possibly can. Although, you know, the move overnight was really interesting. And I'm wondering, on a larger scale, there were these attacks in Saudi Arabian oil production sites that are some of the richest in the world that I believe produce something like 7% of all the oil consumed uh, in a year have that capacity. And there was nobody injured. There were no production sites actually taken offline. And yet oil prices surged, uh, in particular Brent. What do you make of that in terms of what it means about the supply-demand dynamic? Well, I think it means that the market is starting to worry about the potential coming together of demand and supply. There was a view that we would hit a point in the market where things would get pretty tight, that the supply overhang would be gone, demand would return to post pre-pandemic levels, and that we would get a spike in the crude price. What we're seeing now is the reality of that potential coming together. But from what I see, the fundamentals don't actually 
require the, the price to go that high. I think it's still overly frothy um, and a little bit overly worried because the supply of a million and a half barrels per day that OPEC Plus is currently keeping off the market can pretty quickly come back into the market. But again, the industry is grateful for the higher price, so we'll take it for as long as we can get it. All right, Regina, talk to us about our good friends in the U.S. shale patch here with WTI at 65 bucks a barrel. Are they making money? Are they fixing their balance sheets? What are they doing here? They're definitely making money now. Most of them had even made commitments that any dollars over $40 per barrel would be would be given back to shareholders as um, a dividend or being used for debt repayments or being used for stock buybacks. So we're talking about a $25 differential at this point. That's a lot of cash that they'll be able to figure out what to do with. I think they're going to stay the course relative to little to no production increases because they've told a story to the street that they're going to be fiscally disciplined, cash preservation, returning those dollars to shareholders, and they have to continue to tell that story. There may be fringe producers that will get pretty excited and try to go drill, baby, drill, but I don't (laughs) think we'll see that in 2021. Well, and that's been kind of the bet, right? I mean, a lot of people have kind of dismissed the swing production factor of uh, shale producers, the idea that they won't come online that quickly because they've, you know, found light, the light and have now production discipline. Do you think that there are any signs to challenge that assumption that perhaps we could see the shale producers ramp production back up far beyond what people are expecting? Not in the short term, Lisa, because it's not a tap that they can turn on and off, and we'd have to start seeing rig counts go up pretty dramatically um, and flows coming coming up pretty dramatically. We've been steady at 11 million barrels per day in production in the U.S., um, but we were off 2 million barrels per day with the storm. And so I, I think we'll stay steady at 11 million barrels per day, and I think the industry will stay disciplined at least through the next couple of quarters. I'm not saying they're going to stay disciplined even through the end of the year because it's just too hard to resist drilling it at a 60-plus dollar per barrel. But that's when I think OPEC Plus returns that supply to the market, so they sort of keep it at this Goldilocks price. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, and it maintains maximum revenue for the OPEC Plus producers. Were you surprised, uh, just quickly, Regina, were you surprised by OPEC Plus kind of keeping supply steady? I, I was not, actually. I know a lot of analysts had predicted that uh, at least a million barrels per day would come back. I didn't see the rationale for that because they had been, I mean, the Saudis in particular have demonstrated they, they have their hand on the steering wheel relative to how well they're managing crude price. They're not re- ready to take their hands off the steering wheel and leave things up for grabs again. So I wasn't surprised, but um, I am surprised by the, the significant buoyancy in the price. Regina Mayer, thank you so much for being with us. Regina Mayer, Global Energy Head at KPFG, talking about some of the massive gains that we've seen in oil prices and really some pretty big swings overnight. And Paul, it was interesting to see that production wasn't taken offline, and yet still uh, there was a pretty sizable move, particularly in the price of Brent. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, we did see that spike in the morning, but it's since come back here. And again, as uh, Regina was suggesting, shale producers are going to keep disciplined. That'd be interesting to see and to watch throughout the year. At least, she said, in the next couple of months. There was a big caveat there. She said, you know, the near term is truly uh, the near term right now. uh, We are seeing gains throughout the commodity complex as people foresee stronger growth ahead. Right now, we are foreseeing more legislation and possibly the passage of that $1.9 trillion stimulus tomorrow. 
We're talking about vaccines. We're talking about the pandemic almost ended, ending. We're forgetting the energy crisis in Texas, and yet Elon Musk is not. He is working on a potential solution, despite the fact that energy energy officials in that region tried to peg some of the problems on renewable energy sources. Joining us now to tease out all the different parts of this evolving story is Noreen Malik, a Bloomberg News reporter covering all things energy. Noreen, can you just start by laying out the energy crisis in Texas and how it's been connected to the advent and the surge in renewable energies in that state? Yeah, so Texas had a widespread generation failure um, last month and where you had the state and most of the country is mostly reliant on natural gas, natural gas plants tripped offline because they were frozen or they couldn't get fuel. So you had like the U.S. more reliant on natural gas than ever, not able to get get gas like via pipeline. And this is, we've never seen this tested on this level before. Power markets, like the tech, the grids, Texas, like whichever grid you think about is mostly geared towards preparing for summer. So the demand wasn't was supposed to match or maybe even exceed summer demand in in Texas, which is amazing just to think about that you'd have more people turning on power in winter than in summer when it's like a hundred plus degrees. Um, but you had generation failure across across the board, like wind generation froze. You had obviously solar when there's no when there's cloud coverage and at night you can't get solar panels to work um, and coal piles froze up. And a lot of the blame early on was, was placed on wind and, um, and solar because they are intermittent resources. The difference is that, and, and they did see a, a large chunk of generation shut off, but the, the difference was the grid operator was expecting that. What has been apparent from this the last month's events was they now have to rethink how to prepare for winter extremes if there's another repeat. All right. So that's kind of a summary. We appreciate that summary, uh, Noreen, of what occurred. Now in rides Elon Musk. What is Tesla doing in the Texas energy market? So to be fair, um, Tesla was likely working on this project for a while. But it's interesting. We don't know exactly what what his intention is, but batteries can play several roles. They are seen as a critical part of integrated, integrating more renewables. And Texas, like, doesn't have state mandates or subsidies. They do, like, like other states do to integrate a certain amount. So it's really like costs for solar and wind have plunged so much. You're seeing Texas, like, adopt these renewable sources in at an accelerating pace. So as you get more intermittent resources, you need more batteries to back that up. And so there, there are a couple of ways at least that Tesla can can have a role in in this market. They can, you know, at night when there's too much um, wind or, so, uh, or in the day when there's too much solar, it sends – they call it the duck curve, duck curve, when you have too much power and not enough demand, and it causes prices to collapse. So what we've seen battery makers do is come in during those low price periods, soak up like that extra power um, that is just sitting there, really cheap or even being paid to take that power, <laughs> and they store it in batteries. And then when prices are high, like in the evening, like 6 to 8 p.m., when, you know, like people, like the sun is going down and, and you have people turning on lights, like, then they sell it back at that point. 
Batteries can also provide grid stability services, so like make sure power is flowing at this like narrow range it always has to at 60 hertz and provide frequency control. So they could play multiple markets. We don't know exactly what they're going to do, but there's definitely opportunity there. Well, and the reason why I connected the two, the energy crisis uh, a couple weeks ago in Texas and these batteries is because they kind of go together, this idea that there could be a missing link here of storing renewable energy for times when it's more needed. And I'm just wondering how much that crisis kind of gave oomph, the CFA term, to (laughs) Elon Musk to try to get this implemented throughout Texas. Well, as I said, we don't know how big his plans are, but he's coming at the perfect time when this is exactly like when people are trying to figure out what the energy transition could look like. And we definitely need more batteries and need to figure out how to winterize everything. So it will get like if he has hopes for grander uh, like on a grander scale to implement more batteries. And and usually you see that if a battery maker comes in, they're not just doing one project. They're in it and, and you get that know-how of building one and then you build a lot more. Um, so this could definitely help him and he could become a critical part of the conversation. Noreen Malik, thank you so much for being with us. Natural gas and power markets reporter for Bloomberg on Elon Musk riding into the Texas energy (laughs) scene where he already has been anyway to try to take advantage of the situation as well as perhaps add to it. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.